As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 54 of Archaeo Animals, Scales and Tales, Reptiles and Archaeology. I'm Alex Fitzpatrick and with me as always, Siwana Palanza. And this episode, we'll be talking about, well, reptiles and archaeology. So tune in to hear more about that or something. I don't know. We put reptiles and archaeology in the title, so... So yeah, last episode, we did, in fact, brave the very confusing and somewhat terrifying world of amphibia. So today we will face yet another similarly difficult journey as we travel to the land of Reptilia. Ooh, spooky. Possibly even more confusing and terrifying because reptiles are even harder to come by than amphibians. Yeah, I mean, last episode we did say, you know, there's a couple reasons why British archaeologists and even British zoo archaeologists tend to kind of ignore amphibians. There's not that many species native to Britain and, you know, small bones, hard for them to kind of last that long in the archaeological record. And let's be real, there are some people who probably just couldn't be bothered. And fair enough, you have finite time on site and there are lots of things to deal with. Now, reptiles, pretty similar story. We do rarely have to deal with them. We only have six native species of reptile, most of which are quite rare now. But like amphibians, reptiles can not only tell us much about past environments, but in some cases, you know, they're also known for cultural or economic value. Yeah, the thing is also with the species that are normally found sort of in the British Isles, they're also so small in size that yeah, you're not as likely to retrieve them in an archaeological setting, except through like by like environmental soil sampling and that. So yeah, the, the possibilities of finding them, you know, like as a species that are not super common in the first place, and that force sort of reduces further. As we said, yeah, there's only six species that are found in the British Isles. And these are the common lizard, Zootorca vivipara, which is oviparous, as you might expect from the Latin name. The sand lizard, Lacerta agilis, the very agile, would presume. Perhaps not as agile, the slow worm, Anguis fragilis, just literally says that, that they're fragile in, in the actual 
scientific name. It's beautiful. Grass snake, Natrix helvetica, the adder, Vipera berus, and the smooth snake, Coronella austricaca. Tag yourself, I'm the slow worm. Just saying. <laughs> so yeah, you know, as we did with our last episode, we should probably back up a bit because, you know, we don't really talk about reptiles per se. So yeah, what exactly are reptiles? Well, they are part of the taxonomic class of reptilia, and they're ectothermic, aka cold-blooded, and they are vertebrates just like amphibians. But what makes them different is that their eggs aren't actually laid in water. As you may remember, amphibians, they do, in fact, lay their eggs in water. So reptiles don't go through that weird, awkward phase of, you know, having gills and having to kind of transition out of that. Similarly, they have scales instead of that kind of smooth, moist, wet skin that amphibians need to survive. And I heard Simona give a big sigh, potentially over the fact that I used the word moist. You just had to put it in there, didn't you? I mean, how else would you describe amphibian skin? Slippery. They're moist. They're wet. They're big, wet boys. <laughs> they are a bit slimy. Um, yeah, uh, Skeleton-wise, I mean, much of the same issues that we've encountered with amphibians in our previous episode, which, by the way, if you've not listened to it, please go check it out. But yeah, some of the s- similar skeletal issues remain uh, from an anatomical standpoint because their size and texture mean that they can often get mixed up for bird bones. They also have similar, I guess, um, well, similar similarities, similar quirks. For example, vertebral numbers are often buried, and the vertebrae themselves can be very difficult to differentiate, which, to be fair, if you have narrowed it down to reptile, frankly, you've won. So, you know. (laughs) Of course, there's some particular types of reptile that have their own skeletal quirks. So these are the tortoise and the turtle, which are technically from the same order of the testudines, where their the shells are made of both skeletal and dermal bone. Why not? So the part that, of the shell that you mostly see is called the carapace, with the shell itself technically connecting other elements of the skeleton, so your vertebra, ribs, pelvis, shoulders, while the bottom is called the plastron. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, I spent far too long of my adult life before I I got to grad school not knowing if shells were technically part of the skeletal system for, you know, turtles and tortoises. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess so. They they are and they're not. Yeah. (laughs) That's a very helpful yeah, they're very interesting. And obviously, it lends itself to different types of uses in the archaeological record, which we'll talk about later in this episode. You know, uh, obviously, even amphibians were not just used for, say, just either kind of existing in the environment or being used in some other kind of cultural way depending on what kind of region or time period you're working with. But I feel like reptiles in particular have maybe a bit more kind of cultural bag, not baggage, but cultural weight maybe because of the kind of unique qualities that many of them have. So you have like turtles and stuff, they have shells, which is relatively unique for an animal per se. And then you obviously have 
you know, snakes, which then themselves have various qualities as between having venom or just being kind of scary, which is not a opinion I share because I was so obsessed with snakes as a child. I desperately wanted a pet snake and my father was too scared of them to allow them in our house. And I still kind of wanted a pet snake. Cool. They're cute. I think they're very cute. So one thing that I was quickly trying to look up as well, because of course, uh, tortoises and turtles are probably just something you're not going to find all too often in British archaeology, unless they were imported in. Although there was a species of turtle that was found in Britain. The, the European pond turtle, Emis orbicularis, which apparently was found, yeah, like, well, several thousands of years ago, but they were at one point found in Britain and then went extinct. Yeah, I was kind of surprised reading the list of British reptile species that were extant and also native to the British Isles, because I, I figured that, like, you know, I figured maybe a turtle right? Like, and obviously, as you say, there, there was one that did go extinct, but it just, it feels strange, I guess. Yeah. And also with reptiles in Britain, I mean, they are there, but I guess they're kind of living on the elusive side of life. So I don't think I've ever seen like a singular reptile for all the years I've lived here. So like, supposedly we get common lizards, where I'm from, you get them absolutely everywhere. You can't walk anywhere, then bam, there's a common lizard looking at you funny. But never seen one here. It is funny, yeah. Like, obviously, the United States is in itself just such a massive landmass that we have a, a huge diversity of species, depending on where you are. And, you know, even in New York, we had snakes and turtles and all this kind of stuff. And if you go down south, like in places like Florida, it is literally just lizard central, among some other larger, maybe more dangerous reptiles down in Florida. But yeah, it's funny to, and okay, this is me going back uh, to kind of support myself and fend for myself and not believing squirrels existed in the UK because, you know, not seen that many reptiles in the UK. I feel like it stands to reason that you may not have squirrels. Just saying. I still don't think it was that wild of an idea. Basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing. I mean, like, yeah, you, you walk into any sort of uh, British town centre and all you see is just grey squirrels and adders everywhere. <laughs> Listen, I don't know. I just didn't see a squirrel for like the first couple of years I lived here. And I still haven't seen any reptiles. So, you know, it's basically the same thing to me. Although I was going to ask, Simona, have you ever run into a reptile archaeologically? No. Okay. Asked and answered. Yeah, just nope. <laughs> it is funny, though, isn't it? Oh, we have a, uh, I'm get, sensing a, a a message from beyond. I believe someone else has experienced a reptile in the archaeological record. Okay, but it's going to be a really kind of roundabout way. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I experienced, uh, I found several newts, or I think there was like salamanders or something. Uh, newts are amphibians. Digging. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they they were. I think they were frozen alive in like the or frozen dead with the um, the ice or something because I found them in an archaeological site. So technically, they weren't archaeological, but they kind of were archaeological. But they were definitely modern. They had not skeletonized. So that's technically how I find a reptile in an archaeological setting. Well, if it was a nude, then you found an amphibian. Yeah, not a reptile. What about salamanders? Are they not like lizards? Everyone's turning off this podcast because they're I, like... I, I, they're I'm like... not dignifying that with an answer. <laughs> I, oh, okay. So maybe I haven't then. Salamanders uh, are amphibians. See, I definitely knew that and didn't just Google it. Okay, well, I don't know my salamanders from my lizards, unfortunately. I will now slink away and go back to producing and try not to make any other silly comments. How did I get that wrong? I'll, I'll give you credit because I think that... They, there is overlap in terms of like obviously you know their reptiles and amphibians are cold-blooded vertebrates they lay eggs so i think that you can kind of mix them up a little bit i mean literally i could not remember if salamanders were uh, amphibians or reptiles because I, and i think also just because like we think of like bigger kind of lizards they're obviously reptiles so i, I it would stand to reason in your brain to say, oh, salamanders are small lizards, hence they are reptiles. But no, they are amphibians. So I guess they're just moist. <laughs> moist lizard. I stand corrected. <laughs> well, I guess the same with the newt, because it's, it's kind of lizard shaped. It's just a, a, a slimy lizard. Yeah, because, you know, when if you say name an amphibian, you're going to go frog, right? Or toad. If you say name a reptile, you're going to say snake, lizard, crocodile. You're not really going to say salamander or newt because it's not the first thing you really think of. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting very defensive because we're just showing how little we really know about reptiles and amphibians these two episodes. <laughs> But case in point, uh, reptiles are very hard to encounter in the archaeological record. Although, of course, you know, as usual, it does back to question saying, is it really that rare or are we not like we do we not have the tools to proficiently identify it? I mean, some people surely do, but, you know, because like, do you find like a small vertebrate and you're going to presume, oh, yeah, that's an amphibian? Yeah. And I think also, depending on where you are. Obviously, some reptiles are, you know, much, much bigger. If we're talking about reptiles here in Britain, like we said, there a lot of them are, you know, relatively small. So if you do find, if you're lucky enough to even have bones kind of survive to be found, either you're, you know, there's a good chance that you can misidentify them as, say, bird bone or even, you know, depending on small it is, rodent or something like that. Um in comparison to, say, someone working in Africa who is able to find, you know, a crocodilian bone, which is relatively bigger and probably has a better chance of surviving. So it just, you know, it depends. There's a lot working against British reptiles, unfortunately, when it comes to finding their remains in the archaeological record. Although, of course, it's not to say that it doesn't happen. It does occasionally, but... You know, you're not really going to definitely find it. Like we were just saying, Simona, you said you've never found it. I've never found reptile bone ever working in uh, zooarchaeology here in Britain. Even work, looking at, you know, site reports and stuff for my research, you occasionally see people who identify frogs 
uh, so amphibians, but I don't think I've ever seen a site report, at least in the kind of regions and time periods I work in, ever really mention reptiles. Yeah, because I guess reptiles, I guess much like amphibians, for the most part, of course, there are notable exceptions of it throughout Britain, but they weren't as extensively used by people to the extent that they would have been used by other populations around the world. So the remains you'll find are more likely sort of purely environmental in nature of just, you know, this frog that happened to die at the bottom of this ditch or that died somewhere near the ditch and the remains got washed in. So, again, probably not as a likely to find them under archaeological settings and more likely to find amphibians because Britain is a moist country. So... And I so guess a lot of high water tables and ponds and streams and brooks and things and uh, amphibians are going to love that reptiles. Eh. Yeah. We're a wet country for a wet people and a wet wet biodiversity. That's beautiful, Simona. Thank you for putting that thought out there into the world. And and while we reflect on this um, poetry by Alex, I guess we'll take a break. And we are back with episode 54 of Archaeo Animals, Scales and Tales, Reptiles in Archaeology. And as the title goes, we are talking about reptiles in archaeology. And now we're going to talk a bit more about specific species. Now that we know what reptiles broadly are, what makes their bones so peculiar and why they're so rare in here in Britain, let's might as well kind of take a quick look through some reptiles and note. From around the world. Kick this off with the Egyptian spiny-tailed lizard, Uromastix egyptia, as you'd expect, which is found mainly in northern Africa and western Asia. It's broadly related to iguanas and chameleons, coming from the same taxonomic suborder. It is referred to as the dab. These lizards were prominent among zooarchaeological evidence found at the site of um, Al-Yamama in Saudi Arabia which was an historically important agricultural centre within the region. Uh, remains were representative of all parts of the lizard, but a combination of the proximity of other bones related to food waste, as well as cut marks on tibias, possibly indicates sort of anthropogenic use of the lizards, likely to obtain leather and meat uh, during the medieval period at the site. Which is really interesting because we just were talking about, you know, how here in Britain you don't really you aren't really going to see reptile remains being used anthropogenically. It's usually just going to be kind of natural deposits. So it's interesting to see a lizard be used for, because obviously there are various reptiles that are historically eaten and, you know, eaten to this day, yeah, even speaking from the United States, uh, gator is still quite popular uh, in Southern cuisine and i have not eaten it and i really want to try it at some point but yeah it's it's interesting that you would have lizards being utilized for food most likely or for leather which is also something i never really thought about but obviously makes sense because it's what happens even today with you know snakeskin and things like that yeah just wondering with lizards how many lizards do you need to craft a like a, a, a viable piece of leather yeah because they're not i don't think they're necessarily that big they're kind of big 
they're like eh, sort of big <laughs> looking at a picture now trying to figure out how big they are i mean they're, they're bigger than a common lizard put it that way 10 inches to 36 inches or more oh okay it's a respectably sized lizard so yeah usually this particular one usually ranges more towards the, the larger so there's a decent amount of lizard leather there to use but i guess if there's there were a fair amounts found at this site so could be i don't know <laughs> they're pretty boys yeah and but i guess really you know, bad for looking at photos of this litter saying how much leather can you make it's like oh, oh, oh don't, wanna, don't, don't like that and also, obviously, the amount of leather you would need, it really depended on what the leather was being used for. I don't think they really, in the, the report I looked at, I don't think they really got into kind of speculating what the leather was being used for because, there, you know, there, there wasn't really much to go on besides these cut marks on the tibia bones as far as kind of interpreting what they were using it for. But, you know, it's not just clothing, is it? It's belts, it's handle, it's like things for tools. It's uh, loads of other things they could be using it for. So I guess it doesn't necessarily need that many lizards for something like that. Yeah, and I guess the, the cut marks and the tibia kind of checks out for use, you know, like for substance. You'll see a sort of like portion in the carcass because, of course, you'll have your sort of primary butchery, you know, you butcher the animal, first thing that goes, head, feet, and then everything else sort of gets portioned. So you'll have, like, different types of, like, chopped marks showing the portion of the carcass, and then when you're sort of slicing sort of the meat on the bone, trying to fillet it, you'll see sort of further cut marks on the lung bones then. Yeah, I don't think they noted any other cut marks on other parts of the bone, unless that wasn't necessarily something that was found that would be interesting to know. I guess you wouldn't. Hmm, I'm trying to think now, because how would you? How would you properly butcher a lizard, Simona? Uh, I guess also like the lizards as well, because you know, with a lot of say uh, to make comparison, sort of with avian remains, you don't necessarily see a ton of butchery marks on chickens. Yes, if you cook yeah. a whole chicken, you can pretty much dismember it like on the bone. So. Could something similar be happening with reptiles? Do you really need to butcher them? Yeah, I think that might actually be the case. I feel like I've read something that's kind of like, I mean, you know, it's very common that everything's like chicken, right? But I think actually because of the size as well, I think a lot of smaller reptiles aren't necessarily that dissimilar. So I don't know if anyone out there is listening and either you know, consumes reptiles or knows just based on whatever, how reptiles are butchered. We, I'd actually really love to know how do you butcher? Because it's something that, you know, butchery was always something that I had in mind during my PhD. I was like, I'm going to also learn how to do butchery because I think that would be a very valuable skill to have as a zooarchaeologist and obviously never got around to it. But it's still something I'm really interested in because of how many like just the conception of butchery and it becoming its kind of its own like art form and how it's developed over time is really interesting to me because obviously you have to know the ins and outs of animals but how it differentiates between species is also interesting because of how body shapes are and 
morphology and things like that. Oh yeah, like for, for sure. Like knowledge of sort of butchery techniques would be invaluable. Like, and it's definitely a transferable skills into archaeology as well. Yeah, because in a way, like if you yeah. if you're puzzled by this type of chop mark and why is this sort of scapula being cut in exactly this way, like a butcher will know. And it's something that doesn't necessarily tr- change over time. Obviously, you know, technical know-how and technical advances change it slightly where, you know, realistically, you guys, if you look at a cut, you can kind of tell if it's something a bit older or a bit more modern, right? But for the most part, you know, knowing what's a good cut as far as where the meat is doesn't necessarily change per se. I mean, obviously, we breed animals differently, but it's not like, you know, all the meat's going from like the leg now to the head. So we've changed butchery. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is more like the tools that have changed over time. So you see, like, I mean, it's going a bit of a tangent here, but I think the <laughs> saws get introduced in Britain under the Roman period there. I've not mentioned the Romans in a while. And that, of course, like being able to actually like sort of saw bone, like like chop marks and butchery, like quite a bit quicker. And so as you get sort of sharper and sharper implements, you have some cut marks in the medieval period with like knives and implements are so like sharp and they'll make such a tiny trace on the bone that sometimes you need sort of magnifying lenses to actually see them yeah so i guess in some ways i'm also like interested as to what kind of tools were being used to to butcher these lizards as well because again they're not necessarily that big and we know reptile bone is a little more on the fragile side comparatively to a lot of other animals of that size so yeah it would be interesting to kind of get more details about that yeah i guess my money's on the fact that if you cook the whole animal maybe just do some primary butchery so get the head off and that depending on the size of the animal but then once it's been cooked you kind of don't need to chop it any further of course if you're talking about a crocodile, you, you might have to do some butchery on that bad boy. Yeah, that's the, the next one. How did you know? So yes, the Nile crocodile, also known as... Crocodilius niloticus, because it's from the Nile, eh? niloticus. <laughs> so clever. So yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously based on the name, it's probably not a surprise to know that it's local to Africa and act as apex predators in these environments. It is the largest crocodilian in Africa, but actually only the second largest crocodilian overall. The largest is the saltwater crocodile of Asia and Oceania. Like other crocodiles, the Nile crocodile has an exceptionally powerful bite. Although, interestingly, the muscles for opening their mouths are quite weak in comparison. So one of the main ways to control them is just to keep their mouth shut. If they can close their mouth on you, that's bad news. But when it comes to opening them, you could literally just kind of, like, I don't even think it necessarily requires that much force to even hold them down. And it takes a lot for them to open them. So there you go. Um, But yeah, it is something that's actually really important for archaeologists to consider. Why? Because of taphonomy, which I feel like we haven't talked about in a while. Uh, So real quick, taphonomy. It's basically what happens to dead things once they're kind of in the ground or basically after they're dead and all the things that happen to them over time because of nature because of humans because of animals because of archaeologists that's all taphonomy anyway so 
taphonomy and crocodiles are actually really important to kind of put those two together, particularly the impact of crocodilians biting on bones. Given their bite force, signs of crocodile biting and scavenging can include dismemberment, uh, intense trauma on remains. However, their tooth marks are actually really difficult to differentiate from scavengers. So now crocodiles in particular are actually a little bit more characteristic. Uh, they often leave behind really fractured bone with teeth marks consisting of hooks, scores with pivots. So basically uh, they're curved marks at like a 45 degree angle uh, and also clusters of pitting, which are like, you know, little kind of not that deep uh, circular kind of holes uh, and drag snags, which are deep puncture marks that are elongated into like long lines. And they have the uh, similarly unique characteristic of leaving only the distal and proximal ends of long bones intact. So they go just for the epiphysis, the shaft. It's really interesting. And again, something we obviously here in Britain don't ever have to think about uh, when we look at gnawing, we're usually looking at, you know, cats, dogs, and rodents. But depending on where you are, you might have to understand how crocodilians are affecting bones, which is wild. Because yeah, it's almost the opposite of what we get in terms of carnivore gnawing, because as you said, a lot of the carnivore gnawing will be carried out, say, by dogs, foxes. Let's not discount foxes, just like, how do you tell oh, them course. apart? Because <laughs> the pitting on the surface of the bone is the one that you tend to find quite a bit. So in the gnawing, but that tends to be at the epiphysis. So when you have a distal end of a sheep femur is sort of pitted all over the place and there's lots of gnawing, normally by sort of canids, a uh, canid of some description. But yeah, that tends to be on the epiphysis as opposed to the shaft. And it, it makes sense because obviously when a lot of you know, dogs, foxes, when a lot of those kind of animals scavenge and gnaw on bone, they usually, you know, they, they've got the bone kind of in like their two paws and they they angle it up so that the uh, uh, the distal ends are usually kind of, or proximal ends are usually like in their mouth. But I guess, yeah, with crocodiles, for example, because of the shape of their their jaws and mouths and the fact that they got these little tiny little hands that little grabby hands that can't do much it's going to just be chomp 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 and what are you going to chomp 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 on really <laughs> so just just trying to picture a crocodile trying to grab like a gazelle with like this his, his paws and go <laughs> it can't so you, we, we we can't judge that they can only kind of go for the shaft of bones chomp 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 but i kind of love the idea of having to like do a taphonomy report and just being like yeah this is a crocodile that's cool i'm jealous or someone will quote you in a in a report like years down the line <laughs> like it's like oh and the, it seems like uh, the, the crocodile has uh, got hold of the remains and done chomp 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 dr fitzpatrick 2022 i mean am i wrong Finally, we're going to go to maybe less exciting, but still, you know, we got to talk about the grass snake as our always last a, example. Always offending the wildlife. First it was the fish, then it was the squirrels. Now you're insulting the humble grass snake, Natrix, Natrix. 
they're just like, okay, we just talked about crocodiles and like, I love snakes. I love snakes so much, but they're not necessarily as exciting as a Nile crocodile, right? Unless you're a snake enthusiast. I am a snake enthusiast. Not enthusiastic enough. Anyway. No, I'm realistic. (laughs) (laughs) The humble grass snake is found throughout Europe and Northern Africa, where it's also known as the ring snake or the water snake. Now, both of those nicknames kind of make sense. In fact, you know, the um, grass snake has a characteristic like white yellowish color behind its head, hence ring snake. And it does enjoy living and just swooshing around. I don't know, what, what kind of movement verb would you use to describe a snake movement? Do they swoosh? Moist. Crawl. <laughs> I mean, these ones aren't moist because they do like to live near water. So they're slightly moist reptile. Yes, grass snakes have cultural significance amongst many Northern European cultures. They're particularly prominent in Latvian and Lithuanian folktales, just to mention a few. Now, excavations at several later prehistoric sites across the Netherlands have found a substantial assemblages of remains, including eggs, which, amazing that they found those, but including eggs, of grass snakes. So it's likely that these were indicative of agricultural activities taking place on site, but the fact that we seem to be missing the skulls could also suggest the use of grass snake skin and meat. So like, and you know, that primary butchery where the head and the feet go off first. Because in the case of the snake, there's no feet to chomp. But then I guess it could also be due to the um, maybe like a lower survivability rate of reptile skulls. Because they are kind of, they have a million bones in there and they're all very fragile. One of them. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? It's kind of like fish as well, because, you know, with fish, if you don't find the heads, there's a, a bit more of an indication that perhaps you're looking at fish being consumed or used and having been taken out from another site, a processing site, perhaps, where they've cut the head off already and you've got the bones um, for the body, which, you know, you're predominantly will be eating. So, but again, like fish, you know, there's the so many bones, so many fragile bones in a fish head that it's also like, well, it could also be that the you know the survivability rate isn't that high, so a bit difficult in this case to kind of make those in you know those clear cut interpretations. But it is really cool that they found the eggs of grass snakes. That must have been exciting, to be honest. Been one heck of a waterlogged sight. Yeah, wow. <laughs> the eggs. Well, well, while we mull over the humble grass snake's eggs, I guess we'll take a break. And we're back, folks, with episode 54 of Archaeo Animals, Scales, and Tales, Reptiles in Archaeology. We are at our case studies part of our episode where we'll be talking about very specific case studies of reptiles being found in the archaeological record. And yes, this is everyone's favorite. We have to always acknowledge this fact that isn't real and is something I made up about 50 episodes ago. And we've just committed to this bit and we can't not commit to the bit anymore. Just just keep the lie consistent. You know, like many parts of my life, I keep the lie going until I die. So it's fine. Anyway, our first case study is from the Lesser Antilles, which are a series of islands in the Caribbean Sea and include places such as Dominica, Barbados, Aruba, and St. Martin, alongside loads of other kind of small islands and regions like that. 
So examination of many prehistoric assemblages, in fact, I think most prehistoric assemblages found across these islands have indicated the presence of snake remains in half of them. However, a combination of small amounts per assemblage, so not enough to be used as evidence for you know subsistence or other anthropogenic usage, and kind of a lack of expertise and identification down to species, which is also due to a lack of comparative material available, it's made their usefulness in zooarchaeological research problematic. However, more recent work looking specifically for the presence of boa snakes among these assemblages has actually generated some really interesting results. So, for example, closer examination of the snake remains to identify them to species has actually revealed evidence of modification on some of the vertebra, specifically the kind of polishing a taphonomy, which has clearly been trying to make them more rounded and more bead-like. So obviously, these remains have been interpreted as evidence of manufacturing vertebra into beads, which is super interesting, especially knowing how difficult it is to find taphonomy on vertebra. Someone who has done that a couple times on fish vertebra it's not fun, <laughs> and it's incre- incredibly impressive that this was kind of picked up. Uh, so the really interesting thing is that this action seems to be specific only to boas, as similar evidence has not been seen on kind of the more represented sp- snake species in these assemblages. So it could be uh, indicative of a certain cultural status. It could be, of course, there's survival bias at hand. We know that Many boa snakes, like the boa constrictor, are pretty big in comparison to other snakes. Um, But combined with historical ethnographic studies, this likely speaks to a particular status of boas among most indigenous communities as something to respect and fear, thus explaining their relative absence in deposits compared to other snakes because they weren't being actively hunted or really interacted with by the indigenous communities around here. But obviously more work needs to be done. But yeah, I I really liked this kind of case study just because one, like I said, finding vertebra uh, taphonomy is extremely hard. And it's interesting that they were just trying to identify the bones to species and then found this. But also I'm really, it's interesting to see the impact of not having comparative material available. And I think we kind of talked about this with the amphibians, but, you know, with amphibians species and reptile species, you do tend to have a lot of either close to endangered or endangered species along amongst those. And obviously that means finding comparative material, which for those of you who don't know, a lot of zooarchaeologists use modern comparative bones to kind of compare them with archaeological remains to identify them as species. Obviously, it's a bit more problematic to have that for more rare species. So it's interesting to see that impact research like this. Well, it's very interesting because yeah, I said I've never come across reptilian remains, so much less reptilian remains which show signs of modification. Yeah, I can't remember how they actually found that. Like I said, boa snakes tend to be quite big, but vertebra are still not the the biggest thing in the world. So when I did my master's research on fish bones, 
for some horrible reason that no one talked me down from, I decided to use scanning electron microscopy. So this really powerful, big microscope to look at the fish vertebra, which uh, we had a lot, if not thousands, and kind of look to see for evidence of consumption. So obviously for fish, it's the slight, the slightest chance of finding butchery, which I don't think I found any. But the main taphonomic thing I found was evidence of digestion. Obviously, a lot of fish bones are quite small. You can swallow them. And not just humans. Many animals will just swallow the fish whole. And as it goes down your digestive tract, it actually causes a very particular type of compression and erosion of the bone. It's uh, very, very hard. I spent a lot of hours looking at uh, really tiny bones for that. So extremely cool that they were able to kind of find it. I guess reptile vertebra isn't necessarily as bad as fish vertebra, though probably not that far off. But it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and so being able to tell the the identify it like positively as taphonomy as well, because of course I don't know to what extent evidence of bone modification is present on this vertebra, but normally you know, sometimes some bones can actually show like signs of polishing like naturally, sort of like if there's water movement and they just roll around the ground, you can get some but then it's also being able to tell like, okay, this is natural, sort of like a natural taphonomic event versus these have been polished, sort of like it, it's an anthropogenic factor. So yeah, good 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 on them. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of this is still very preliminary. I mean, the report I read was very upfront about the fact that a lot of work needs to be done and really kind of highlighted these limitations I talked about as far as, you know, not having as much evidence to really concretely say anything about the use of snake remains, specifically boa remains. But I think having the historical ethnographic studies as well, which, um, again, I'm not sure if we really have talked about, you know, the fact that ethnographic studies are often used in archaeological interpretation. And in that, you know, if you do an ethnographic study, so say uh, interviewing descendant communities, uh, indigenous communities, things like that, and uh, understanding their perspective of, say, how certain animals are used, or even like history, family histories, oral histories, you can use that with archaeological evidence and kind of get a better idea of interpretations. So it's interesting to see that combination in there. Yeah, because of course, they're they're incredibly useful and fascinating. So of course, so long as you remember sort of the limitations of it, because Mm -hmm. by using the ethnographic record, like if you apply a sort of word for word, so to speak, in a way you're kind of making the assumption that that culture has not changed for 2000 years, which of course isn't the case. And also, again, not not the case here, but I'm just speaking broadly, where people can use things from the ethnographic record of a culture and then apply it to somewhere completely different on the other side of the globe and saying, oh, but because there was this culture in uh, southeastern United States, they used to do this. So this culture in uh, New Zealand must have been doing it for the same reason, which, no. Yeah, definitely can be used problematically. But I think you could also say that about basically everything in archaeology, <laughs> everything ever. <laughs> is, your, is your hashtag like, oh, archaeology is problematic? <laughs> 
I feel like problematic is a, a soft word for what archaeology has historically done. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, for our second case study, we're going back to the world of turtles. We're moving to the southeastern United States. And now, of course, turtles have been utilized across North America for subsistence and sociocultural reasons, and it's like for a very long time. You see, you know, the shells being used as bowls, cups, effigies, you know, among other things. What we are specifically going to be talking about for this case study are turtle shell rattles, um, which traditionally have been used by many sort of southeastern indigenous groups, such as the Cherokee, the Shawnee, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole peoples. Now, turtle shell rattles are made from a variety of species, but in this particular region of uh, North America, they're mostly made from the eastern box turtles, the Terrapene Carolina Carolina or Carolina Carolina. Guess where they're mostly found? Other fun fact, box turtles are called that because they can actually close up their shells like a box due to a hinge at the bottom of their shell. So, yeah, that, I got a note here from Alex saying, I wish I could do that. I do. That would be amazing if I could close myself up like a box. So you don't want to be bothered and just go, no, I'm in my box. You can't touch me in my box. But anyway, what makes the turtle shell rattle so interesting from a zoological perspective is how difficult it is to differentiate between a worked shell that has been used as a rattle versus a turtle shell showing modification during cooking. Now, archaeologists have since been able to identify sort of several key characteristics to help differentiate between the two uses, including sort of whether there are any associated ceremonial ritual objects, whether it's a funerary context, if there's a species preference for substance like vis-a-vis the crafting of rattles, and the additional rattle implements, which um, would normally take the place, take the form of pebbles, freshwater drum. Alpodinotus gruniens, usually their teeth, and seeds, which would, again, all be used to sort of create that rattling noise. But the characteristic that is probably most interesting for zoo archaeologists involve representation and modification. Rattles are only representative of two elements of the turtle skeleton. So you have the carapace, the top, we all know that, and the plastron, as we've learned, is the bottom part. So aka, you know, the shell. The addition of other elements in a deposit may suggest that you're looking at food waste as opposed to just literally just finding the carapace and the plastron. In terms of modification, there are two things to mainly look out for, whether it's intentional modification or unintentional modification. It's intentional where you find, for example, actual sort of drilling into the shell, which would allow sound to be produced as well as to tie the shell to arms and legs sometimes to a hide however you can also get unintentional modification that can be made during this process so stress marks polishing from use so again we're talking about polishing just earlier you can also get accidental polishing through sort of repeated use and touching of the the object of the bone object for example now, there's other signs of modification in the form of cut marks, sort of snapping, etc., which, of course, will be more associated with food remains. And, of course, you know, being able to differentiate between these different types of bone modification is vital to understanding, you know, what the turtle remains would have been used for, give you a more sort of accurate understanding of the activities on site. And, of course, in the particular context 
of the southeastern United States, there's also a potentially more important, important purpose. Because if you sort of positively identify cultural objects within a deposit, then you have more of a claim under NAGPRA, which will allow them for the repatriation of indigenous artifacts and remains. Yeah, I realize, you know, obviously we talk about animal bones predominantly on this show, as we are a zoo archaeology show. So we don't really ever talk about the kind of, you know, we were just talking about archaeology is problematic. Um, we don't really talk about the kind of ethical considerations that other parts of archaeology usually get more scrutiny under. You know, obviously, if you're working with human remains and if you're working with certain cultural material artifacts, you have to consider, you know, respect and you have to consider sovereignty and repatriation. And obviously, for the United States, this all falls under NAGPRA, the, the NAGPRA Act, which covers repatriation for indigenous artifacts and remains. And with animal bones, you don't necessarily deal with that, you know, for the most part, animal remains in archaeological records are either kind of natural deposits because animals are all around us or their consumption. So they're, they're kind of rubbish, basically. But this was an interesting case study that, you know, turtle rattles are cultural objects and not only does, would they help you kind of have more of a claim for kind of repatriation or indigenous sovereignty over a certain deposit if you found them, but also, you know, they themselves are cultural artifacts that should go back to the descendant communities from which they came from. And, you know, they, they, there's probably more examples of kind of animal-based artifacts that are really important cultural objects that should be repatriated or, you know, again, included in more indigenous sovereignty and agency over what's being done with their artifacts. But yeah, we don't really get to talk about that, I think, on this podcast. And obviously, I think anyone who talks about archaeology, it's important to emphasize the importance of these kind of acts and of the kind of moral obligation, I think, archaeologists at least should have to make sure that uh, ancestor remains and cultural objects and all these kind of things go back to where they belong, uh, with whom they belong really, or at least that these descendant and indigenous communities have a say in what happens to them. So yeah, I think that was interesting to kind of briefly mention that. Like I said, I don't think we will normally have an opportunity to really talk about that. But again, I think it's very important. And also uh, <laughs> to, to bring the mood up a bit, I will admit Another Alex moment in that I just thought, hmm, I've never been to the southeastern United States and then remembered where North Carolina is, which is where my family now lives in. So there. I mean, the, the box turtle that we literally just talked about is the Terrapena Carolina Carolina. Listen, <laughs> they don't ask you to know geography in archaeology. So, yeah. Anyway, I think 
that's enough of that for this episode. And I think I need to go look at a map of the United States, a country that I spent 22 years of my life living in and kind of figure out what's going on there. Anyway, uh, as you as long time listeners know, but I'll say it anyway, you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. And if you're there, think about subscribing or following our show. Think about leaving us a review, a nice one, hopefully, and telling your friends about us. We always like to get new listeners to listen to our nonsense and be completely confused the whole time. We are on Twitter still, somehow, at ArcheoAnimals. Follow us on there. And again, let us know what you want us to do episodes on because we do like doing listener request episodes, especially when they have basically nothing to do with zooarchaeology and have more to do with video games. I am itching for a video game episode. It has been a time. I mean, we had the alien one, but that was uh, it was briefly touched on like a handful of video games. It's it's not quite. Yes, please, please give us a request to do another video game episode. Simona is dying. But I think that about does it for us. So uh, see you next month for our next episode. Until then, I'm Alex Fitzpatrick. Simona Falanga. And you've been listening to Archeo Animals. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.